0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The nation observed the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King this week, but events commemorating his death continue, including one scheduled next week at Washington University. There are still related stories to be told. Featured speaker at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics event is Jonathan Walton, social ethicist and professor of Christian morals at Harvard University and professor of religion and society at the Harvard University Divinity School. He joins us by phone. In studio with me is Lerone Martin, professor of religion and politics at Washington University and the author of Bureau Clergyman, How the FBI Colluded with an African-American Television evangelist to destroy Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Nice to have you with in studio, LaRone. Thank you for being with us, and Professor uh, Walton, thank you for being with us. Great to be here. Well, it's good to have you. Let me begin uh, with you, and a a very basic question, and that is, how did religion, uh, in your mind, inform Dr. King's work?
1: Oh, I I mean, I think we think of Dr. King is a great civil rights leader and activist, and this is true. But I mean, first and foremost, he was a preacher of the gospel. I mean, he was a child product of a grandson and son of preachers at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. And he attended after Morehouse, where he studied religion, and then went on to Crozier Seminary and Boston School of Theology, earning a Ph.D. in theology. And so this constituted his moral framework. So everything that we see in King's activism, and King's public ministry, uh, he was bearing witness to his understanding of the grace of God as witnessed in Jesus.
0: Marone, do you want to comment further on that?
2: Oh, I think Professor uh, Walton is absolutely correct, and King's idea of uh, every human being being created in the image of God is uh, the sort of basic foundation from which his ministry and activism uh, um Came, came from.
0: Uh, pre- professor, I'm sorry, did you want to say something? Oh, I thought you were getting ready. No, to, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: No, I mean, I, go ahead. No. no, it's fine. I mean, this, this is, you know, particularly in a day and age where we define evangelicalism so narrowly, uh, we tend to think of white conservative evangelicals as the end-all and be-all, but we forget that King uh, is out of his own evangelical roots. And it was that kind of conception, as Professor Martin just said, that kind of conception of God. It's that all people were created in the image of God under the parenthood of God, and so therefore we're all, we are all siblings, we're all brothers and sisters in the Kingdom of God. And if we're all brothers and sisters and we have equal dignity and we are imbued equally, then think about it, one person, one right to vote. Uh, No law should ever be able to contain or uh, restrain the behavior of anybody else in terms of laws such as segregation and economic exploitation. And so therefore, all of this was filtered to his understanding, as Professor Martin said, of the Kingdom of God.
0: Well, if Martin Luther King brought uh, religion and politics together, if you will, uh, how do you see the role of, uh, of religion in today's politics?
1: Professor Martin, you Pref- want to take that
2: one? Well, I think that, um, as, as Professor Walton mentioned, that we are custom, I think, in America to think about um, religion and politics primarily from the perspective of white conservative evangelicals. But I think that there is a long tradition of which Martin Luther King is a part of, of folks who are um, people of faith and who are committed as well to bringing their faith to the public square. And I think that there is an entire uh, tradition that is often gets uh, not talked about much um, about sort of more progressive ideas about religion and politics. I'm thinking, for example, uh, folks here in St. Louis by the, folk, the names like Reverend Tracy Blackman, Rabbi Susan Talvi. And even more broadly in the U.S., we can think about someone like uh, Reverend Barber who was trying to plan a, a poor people's campaign in a, a similar tradition in vain of Martin Luther King. So um, religion and politics are very much so a part of our society today. I think that um, hopefully what we can do with by invoking King and in the history of what he's done – we can sort of highlight uh, another tradition that is not always sort of connected to conservative politics.
0: But Professor Walton, it seems to me that uh, this is having a, a, a polarizing effect in today's America. You agree?
1: I, I would absolutely agree, and it's part of because of the form that religion in the public square has taken, and particularly over the past three to four decades. I mean, so much of what we witness now uh, in terms of those with the loudest microphones uh, and those who seem to get the most immediate coverage uh, seems to be those in the, re- in the public square who have theocratic sensibilities and autocratic aspirations. They reduce personal piety, uh, religion to personal piety, and particular behaviors that they deem as normative, and all too often those behaviors are quite exclusive and so, therefore, it's hard to ignore the Islamophobia and the sexism and the, and the racism and homophobia that all percolate to the top of particular religious orientations that veer more to kind of cultural fundamentalism. But that's not what King stood for. When we think about a Martin Luther King Jr., or before him a Dorothy Day, or a uh, Rabbi Joshua Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel. We're talking about people who had a conception of their faith that first and foremost was about affirming human dignity. And so therefore, it's about how do we become crusaders for love? How do we affirm children no matter where they're born, no matter whether it's uh, born with fleecy locks, a dark complexion, no matter if they're born in Appalachia, no matter uh, uh, if they were born of a different religion? We understand every human being is special and unique, and we have to affirm them at every at every moment. And that's what Dr. King stood for, and that is what uh, animated his behavior in the public sphere.
0: But I w- did you want to?
2: Yeah, and I will just add to that that um, and a great deal of that um, has to do with um, conceptions of sin in some ways, right? As Professor Walton mentioned. Um, you have a conception of sin that is strictly individual about certain types of normative behaviors. And King's idea of sin was much more about sin is, is social. It's about a sort of separation, separation from one's brothers and sisters, uh, separation from uh, from God, and so sin is much more of a social idea. So that's how you can begin to include ideas of economic inequality as something that might be sinful, or racial inequality. That, right. So these are sort of a broader conception of what we mean by sin or missing the mark, so to speak. You
0: use the word include, and inclusion is one of the things that I, you know, I think that is is out there, and is one of the components of uh, of organized religion today. Most of them, anyway. Uh, and yet, it seems to be something that the, the, they want to move away from in some quarters. I don't want to name a specific <laughs> sect or religion or anything, but you know what I'm getting at uh, with regard to inclusion—whether it be immigrants or whether it be blacks or whether it be whites, whether it be whomever. Where, where, what happened to inclusion in today's religion? Well, well I've, oh, Professor Walton, go ahead. Well,
1: well, I was just going to say a, a King always understood that it's not about you know racial or religious identity as much as it is about moral affinity. And so therefore, what connects us are a kind of vision that has a conception that affirms all beings. And so even the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, SCLC, that he headed up, It had an evangelical theme and motto, but it was redeeming the soul of the nation, and that is to the point that was made earlier. It's not just about individual sin, but it's about structural sin. And so in the classic words of Dr. King, any religion that professes to be concerned with the the souls of men, and is not concerned with the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that cripple them, or the social conditions that strangle them, is a dust-dry religion and Marxist opiate of the people. And so if our religious faith is going to have any import, and if it's going to matter at all, then it has to matter about what kind of society that we want to live in. And for King, it was radically democratic. Why? Because his love included everybody.
0: Well, we haven't come very far, have we, since, uh, since he was... Uh... Uh, in the '60s, and, and sending his message to us and to the world.
1: But, I would say yes and no. I mean, I think part of the, I think part of the backlash that we're seeing now, where we're seeing sectors that seem so intolerant, is an outgrowth of the progress that this society has made. I mean, when you, when King during the civil rights movement, when they were experiencing heightened violence, and Birmingham, it turned into Bombingham. In many ways, it was a reaction to, the, to the, the success of civil rights protests and activity. And that's why Dr. King famously said, we see that segregation is on its deathbed. It's just a matter of how expensive, expensive the funeral is going to be. And I think that's kind of the way we could think about our society now and our world as we kind of see this resurgence of neo-fascism and, and Brexit and, and the Trump era now. Uh, it's a backlash to the great progress that we have made. Um, and I think those of us who stand on the side in this Kenyan tradition of affirming human dignity, we have to know that the battle is never won because injustice is a many-headed hydra.
2: Are you agreeing with all of this? Oh, oh, absolutely. And I think uh, another example of that is what we see. We know about the FBI surveillance of Martin King and all that he was doing and others in the civil rights movement. And we know from various um, documents that have been exposed that we know that surveillance in a similar manner is increased on nonviolent protesters today as it relates to Black Lives Matter, both here in St. Louis and, and across the nation. And so... It is a reaction to some of the gains and some of the uh, uh, rhetoric and some of the um, nonviolent actions to help bring American, American democracy closer to justice as it relates to uh, racial minorities, and I think that we're seeing a, a backlash. You've brought me to where I wanted to come at some point in this discussion, that is talk
0: about your book and talk about uh, the attempts to discredit uh, Dr. King during the 1960s. Your book is A Bureau Clergyman, How the FBI Colluded with an African-American Televangelist to Destroy Dr. Martin Luther King. Can you give us the, the Cliff Notes version of that story so we can talk about it?
2: I can. Um, and it, it's, it's, an, it's an article that I've written that's going to be part of a book. So keep oh, me okay. in your thoughts and prayers that I yeah. can finish it. Uh, Let us know when you finish it. We'll talk about it. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, essentially, this it's an evangelical uh, minister who has a radio show, and he's a televangelist as well. His name is Reverend Lightfoot Solomon Mishaw. And he uh, works with the FBI to both what I call launder their counterintelligence against King, that he is a communist and he is not influenced by his faith, but he is influenced by an atheistic communist view to overturn the nation. And he coordinates with the FBI to sort of launder that intelligence, insert it into his sermons uh, and is w- to protest King as well, um, literally uh, standing outside with picket signs where Martin Luther King was residing at a hotel at one point in time in Baltimore as a way to sort of get in the public sphere um, to... Um, authenticate the FBI's findings to convince the broader American public and the White House and the executive branch that King was indeed a communist and he was not motivated at all whatsoever by his faith.
0: And he, he was not just a Sunday preacher; he was a televangelist and had a wide audience, as I understand
2: it. He had a wide audience. He had a radio. It was on radio beginning in 1929 until his death in 1968. Uh, his television show did not last that long, but it started in '48. Um, so he had a very wide following, um, and the FBI uses him, especially because he's African-American, uh, to authenticate their claims. So it's one thing to have someone like a Billy Graham to come out and say that you know Martin Luther King is moving too fast or Martin Luther King has questionable motives. But it's a, a different kind of thing, right, to have an African-American authenticate those claims as well, and the FBI knew that.
0: What was his motive? Did he truly believe that Martin Luther King was a communist?
2: Uh, He did. I think that communist became this sort of catch-all phrase, right, for anybody who didn't uh, believe um, the way that uh, uh, Reverend Michal believed. In a similar way, I think that today people want to use socialist, right, in a way as a catch-all for folks who may be different from their perspective. He did believe that because of King's belief in using religion uh, being motivated, excuse me, by religion to bring America closer to its professed ideals. Ms. Shaw's um, uh, idea was to simply that if we could get everybody converted to Jesus and to give the heart to Jesus, that eventually America would be, uh, uh, ri- would rid herself of racism, would rid herself of injustice. So they had very different uh, ideas about how to move forward. Uh,
0: uh, Professor uh, Walton, are there any Mishaws Shaw's out there now, do you think?
1: No, I think I think you, they're more common. <laughs> I think they're more common than than the not. I mean, we we have to remember. I mean, popularity in terms of religious spaces is never one about being prophetic. You know, prophetic with P H E T I C, mm-hmm. right? I mean, much more. It seems that preachers are much more concerned with being profitable with the F. And Martin Luther King came up under Benjamin Elijah Mays at Morehouse College, who used to teach that preachers have to be more concerned about the welfare of others than the wheelbase of their Cadillacs. And it seems that so many are chasing, you know, luxury cars and fancy homes. I mean, so even if you look at who President Trump surrounds himself with, I mean, it's largely a just a cadre of mediocrity. Um, whether you're talking about you know, the South Carolina televangelist, uh, Pastor Mark Burns, whether you're talking about the gentleman from Ohio, Daryl Scott, who just kind of repeat Trump's talking points and try to give uh, black religious cover uh, to what we see as neo-fascism. And so I think the, Solomon, the Lightfoot Solomon Michaels of the day are very active, and it's quite a lucrative business if you can get into it.
0: Professor Martin, how closely would you guess that uh,
2: uh, activists are are monitored today? Well, from what we we know, um, I think they're being monitored very closely, uh, especially those who are African-American. We've seen from documents that have been uh, leaked on various websites that are authentic documents that show that Black Lives Matter protesters are being uh, followed. Um, They're being surveilled. Um, So it seems to be that we are, um, in a similar way, back to where we were when Martin King, in terms of the surveillance that he suffered
0: under. Yeah, that's why I asked the question before. Posed the notion that uh, we haven't come very far in the last fifty years.
1: Well, well that's what we have to, you know, that's what we have to remember. I mean, today mm-hmm. in today's society, it's easy. You know, we have kind of valorized Martin Luther King, and we have placed him within the pantheon of civic gods of American society somewhere along the lines of, you know, Abraham Lincoln that just cared all about black humanity, George Washington, who couldn't tell a lie. We have uh, Martin Luther King Jr., the colorblind dreamer. And we forget the fact that at the time of his death, I mean, J. Edgar Hoover had referred to him as the most dangerous Negro in America. We also have to remember that he had a uh, his unpopularity was around 73 percent in the white community, and his, unpop- his disfavorable rankings in the African-American community were well into the 30 percent at the time of Martin Luther King's death. Uh, and so it's easy for us today. Uh, we've kind of held him up as this kind of tooth fairy of racial harmony. But at the same time, we've taken the claws and his bite out of his message, and we've done a disservice to King, and we've done a disservice to ourselves.
2: And I, and I I couldn't agree with that more. I think that um, hopefully if we can sort of reclaim King, it will allow um, those of us today who are concerned about um, 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 others to begin to use King uh, once again as a conversation partner and someone we can engage in theological and ex- ethical reflection with. Because as of right now, we've allowed him, as Professor Walton has said, he's been sanitized. And I think a lot of younger activists coming up. I think a lot of younger ministers don't always recognize the kind of tools that King offers for us today to think about our own situations. I'd like to talk for a moment about the,
0: about the role of the clergy, particularly the black clergy, uh, is playing today. I'm thinking back to the Ferguson situation. The clergy was very, very active to be sure, but you know, I, I wonder who they were reaching. You know it's one thing to to preach from the from the, the, inside the church, but who's listening outside the church, particularly young people today? Do you have any feeling that, that young people are hearing these messages?
2: I think they are. I think the younger generation, uh, including my students at Washington University here in St. Louis, I think that they are uh thirsty, I think for a kind of spiritual and religious guidance, and I think that we have several clergy in the community who have provided that, even if these young people aren't in the pews on Sunday. They're still reaching out on social media. They're still meeting at various um, uh, gatherings here in St. Louis. They're seeking prayer, counsel, um, conversation with clergy in the area. So I do believe that they are being reached, even if they're not on the pews on Sunday. I think we have to sort of expand how we understand religious practice today in order to sort of put these young people in the frame. Professor Walton, what's your take on that?
1: I definitely agree with how we have to expand our view and include in that occupational differentiation. Our young people are learning and receiving messages from many different spaces, from the classroom, from uh, their churches and synagogues and mosques, uh, their university settings. Um, And so it's not just kind of one leader. I think that has also been a disservice because we've held King up as this kind of Moses figure um, and as a kind of quote-unquote quintessential Negro leader, if you will, which he was never that, because really when we talk about – when we think about black religious leadership in that particular way, we're talking about three things – inspiration, appeasement, and accommodation – somebody who can inspire the people – Uh, Somebody who can accommodate to the power structures enough to appease the people before going back to inspiring them all over again and then starting back from scratch. But King was not that. He spoke the truth. The same thing as James Baldwin said in a great essay about him. The same thing he said to white audiences, he said to black audiences. The same things he said to the rich, he said to the poor. And when we look at the ways that young people from Lakeland, Florida, who uh, rightfully have been framed as heroes, uh, but beginning in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, where, where their activism uh, was not being framed in the same way as young people from Lakeland, and that's unfortunate, uh, but we're seeing it across, across classes and university settings and in religious sectors. Young people, they're raising their voice for change, and it's a beautiful thing.
0: All right. Well, I want to tell folks uh, about what you're going to be doing here uh, next week at uh, Graham Chapel at Washington University. Uh, the discussion is going to be religion as a conversation starter, embracing King's political philosophy of somebodiness. Uh, in, in 15 seconds, what is, how do you define somebodyness?
1: Somebodyness. we're talking about this sense of dignity that everybody has. And before we can talk about—it's really the great commandment for King, right? Loving God with all thy heart and then loving your neighbor as yourself. But with that, you have to understand that loving yourself is a precondition for loving your neighbor. And so that is the beginning of political activity and political involvement. Self-love, not in terms of hubris or pride, because we're talking about minoritized groups that find themselves on the underside, and no, using that nice. self-love to animate activities.
0: I've got to stop you there, Professor. I'm sorry I'm running out of time, but uh, uh, Professor Walt and Professor Martin will be talking about this at Graham Chapel at 7 o'clock on Tuesday, the 14th of April, uh, continuing what we've begun here. Thank you so much for being with us. Nice thank you for having and, me, Brother Don. Thank, thank, the, thank the professor, too, in, in, at Harvard. I'm Don Marsh.